Welcome back to the latest edition of Until Saturday. I'm Ari Wasserman, joined by my co-host David Oven, who has been on vacation for the past two years. I don't know where you've been, but it's good to see your face again, David. Um, Welcome back to the show. Uh, We have a pretty big show here because we have Dane Brugler. Can I call you the czar of the NFL draft? Is that that a good way to do it? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've been called quite worse than that, so that that works. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot to talk about, both in the NFL draft world, players who are leaving the teams to enter the NFL draft and move on to the next level, but also college football changes and maybe how we can evaluate high school players and and college players similarly to the way that they are uh, as they're heading into the draft. The SEC and the Big Ten have an advisory group. Uh, What could that mean for college football and the movement of the sport in general and Dr. Pepper Fansville theory from a fan here uh, that I found quite funny along with other mailbag questions. So we have a pretty load loaded show. Uh, Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and please help support the show uh, by leaving a five-star review. If you leave a question with that review, we will do our best to answer it on the show. Uh, Subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Both the links to the YouTube and the podcast can be found in the show's description and leave us a voicemail for future until Saturday episodes uh, on our phone line at 316-462-9852. You can text that line, but please leave a voicemail. They're really fun and we love to hear your voice. So why don't we get into the show guys? Dane, how is your life right now? (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I'm doing great. I, uh, it's good to be home. I I was on the road the last two weeks, uh, first in Frisco, uh, for the shrine bowl. Mm-hmm. And then Mobile for, for the Senior Bowl. So two of the most productive trips of the year for me. And uh, I got to admit, though, I love this week. It's Super Bowl week. So all of the attention is on the hoopla out there in Vegas. And I've got a week to just kind of catch up, get my breath uh, before everyone shifts back to draft talk uh, starting uh, next week. But uh, yeah, this is the... We're getting right into it. It's becoming real now. But you know what? I've been waiting months and months for everybody to talk draft with me. So uh, I'm just glad it's here. He is uh, the Athletics NFL Draft Guru. Um, he creates this large document called The Beast, which is probably the most popular content item that we have uh, every year on The Athletic. And it's like 9,000 pages of pure uh, draft information. So it's if you're a draft good. nerd, or uh, it's very thorough, but but more importantly, it's very good, like Dave said. Um, be sure to check that out. And also be sure to check him out on The Athletic Football Show uh, feed moving forward. Uh, the NFL season will be coming to an end on Sunday night, and then it turns into his Super Bowl. So Dave, sorry for cutting you off. Let me get, once you get to your question no i was gonna say i was planning on calling dane every day moving forward asking when the beast was going to be ready uh (laughs) dane we get the beast let's get the beast going let's get the beast going. honestly there's a late march early april there's a day i wake up i'm just like all right i can't i can't do anymore this is it let's just (laughs) let's cut it off because look there's always gonna be another player to watch there's always gonna be another another tape to watch and at some point you just got to cut it off and say all right this enough's enough 400 players, you know, all these words and pages, whatever, you know, it's it's time to release it into the wild. So uh, we're not quite there yet, but uh, I'm, I'm getting anxiety thinking of the counting down the days until we're there. Dane, there's a lot of uh, NFL draft experts out there. Um, you see mock drafts all the time and stuff. But why don't you give uh, our listeners a key into what your year is like in terms of and if you're unfamiliar with the beast star that you've been living under the rock, but the beast is um one of the best tools for the NFL draft. And it looks like it takes a full year to, to compile all the information, a lot of mm-hmm. reporting, a lot of anal- analysis, a lot of, uh, you know, watching tape. How do you put this thing together uh, every, every spring? 
Well, first of all, thank you for not snickering when you said the word expert. Um, <laughs> like I'm, I, I really enjoy this process because it's, uh, it is a process. It, it literally takes years to put these things together because, um, you know, I'm, I'll be watching film on a player uh, on an offensive tackle, and then this pass rusher starts flashing. It's like, oh, who's this guy? Oh, he's a freshman. Okay, I better write his name down for two years from now when I need to make sure that I'm doing more work on him. So it's uh, I watch a lot of college football, but it's really all I do is watch the film and work the phones. That That's basically the bulk of my time. Um, I will get on the road here and there, not as much as I used to, uh, just because I have the film right in front of me, um, and I get it's a lot more efficient doing it that way. Um, but you know, in, in earnest, it starts in the, in the, in the summer. That's where you get the base, the foundation for, uh, all these seniors and for a lot of these, uh, high profile juniors, underclassmen. And then you go through the season, you start updating those, uh, reports and those grades and then becomes January 1st. And that's when we get into all-star season, which we just finished up. And now it gets into getting ready for the combine, getting the verified measurements and all these steps during the draft process, the all-star games, the combine, the workouts, it's, it's, they're cross-checking exercises. Uh, You know, you don't, automatically change your grade on a player just because somebody ran fast in the 40-yard dash or because he looked good uh, during senior bowl practices. It's it's a cross-checking exercise. So if you see something during one of these steps of the process, okay, you go back to the tape and figure out, okay, what did I miss? Uh, you know, is this guy actually a better athlete than I thought? Um, you know, seeing him, you know, being on, on the field uh, five feet away from these guys uh, at the senior bowl it just gives you a better sense for how they move, what type of athlete they are, what type of body type do they have, uh, just all the different biomechanics of who they are as an athlete, um, but then also the technical side and just their play strength, things like that. So um, it, 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 there's all these necessary steps to the final product that hopefully creates a, a better picture for who these guys are. The background information is really important. So, you know, I'm talking to parents, high school coaches, siblings, um, you know, a lot of people to gather all this information because, again, there's all these puzzle pieces. They're all over. And the more puzzle pieces that you gather helps put together a more clear picture for who these guys are as football players and as people and who they'll eventually be as NFL guys. Yeah, coming off of Mobile, uh, Dane, who jumped out to you and, and why do you hate everybody else's teams? <laughs> uh, you know, I it, there were definitely some quote unquote winners or you know guys mm-hmm. that stood out. Um, Darius Robinson from Missouri uh, came in. I mean, he was in my uh, mid January two round mock. Uh, Darius Robinson was a second round pick, and you know, a player that was easy to like on film because he looks the part. He's long, you know, six five, two hundred ninety pounds, moves well, uh, but he also he showed better technique and better understanding how to how to break down blockers and get to the quarterback. And we saw that throughout the week of practice. Um, he was uh, one of the best players down there in Mobile. Maybe worked himself into that top forty, top thirty conversation. Uh, Quinion Mitchell from day one was uh, a, a big time player. Uh, the corner from Toledo. Um, he has a chance to be a top twenty pick. Uh, a couple tackles. This is a very tackle-rich draft in the first round at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tyler Guyton from Oklahoma, Talise Fuaga from Oregon State. Both those guys are kind of jockeying for position uh, in terms of who are going to be the first five or six tackles drafted. Uh, Tavondre Sweat, all 360-some-odd p- pounds of him. Uh, he, he Actually, he did not step on the scale at the Senior Bowl, um, which tells me maybe he's a little bit heavier than he wants to be and trying to 
get down those pounds before the combine. But uh, nonetheless, good good luck stopping him when uh, you know he comes rolling at you with all that power behind his pads. So, um, but you know what? People want to talk about the quarterbacks, right? You know that's where mm-hmm. a lot of the conversation shifts and. Everyone overreacts to the quarterbacks. I mean, not too long ago, I remember uh, reading Malik Willis and Kaysen, or, or Carson Strong first-round tweets uh, from, from the Senior Bowl, and, and just looking around thinking, like, guys, this is, this is not how this works. Uh, but because of that inevitable hype, I expected Bo Nix and Michael Penix to really shine and, and for the hype machine to get out of control at, at the Senior Bowl. But really, they had very up-and-down weeks. Uh, and I usually ignore the quarterbacks, the first practice, give them a day to settle in, you know, new receivers, new environment. But then by practice two and three, I'm looking for improved timing, placement. And overall, it was just a mixed bag from both Knicks and Penix. And so, um, and, and that's not to take, you know, say they hurt themselves at all, but it, it, they, I don't think they, they help themselves necessarily. And both these guys have, you know, five, six, Knicks has five years, Penix has six years of tape where we've seen enough on these guys to know what they are. Um, but really the entire quarterback position as a whole. Um, I, I do a, a wrap-up article where I pick one winner from each position, and for the quarterbacks, I went with Spencer Rattler uh, from South Carolina because he was just the most consistent. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting as we debate Knicks and Penix throughout the process. Um, I, I've got plenty of teams or plenty of people in the league who are steadfast that Knicks is going top 20. Um, and part of that are the quarterback needy teams that are picking in the teens, but it'll be really interesting to see how these quarterbacks separate themselves or, or maybe don't separate themselves the rest of the process. Dane, I think that the process of evaluating and drafting a quarterback is one of the most interesting things in all of sports because at times, just as a college football reporter, and I think Dave probably shares this you know, notion a little bit, is that the process, which is you know what you're just talking about, senior bowl, combine, off-season weight routines, all this stuff sometimes takes precedent or seems to take precedent over tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at times there's players that get drafted. Uh, there have been a few times um, in my career where a player gets drafted really, really high, and I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And that player doesn't turn out to be very good. And it's like, I don't know what I'm even looking at. How am I supposed to know this? And then all these people who are making all these decisions and paid a ton of money to evaluate them don't see what everybody who watched the game saw. And the question I have for you, especially at the, at the quarterback position, is that it seems like such a random bag in the NFL of who turned out to hit and who didn't as we're you know gearing up for a, a, a Super Bowl with Brock Purdy starting in it. Like we, we don't really seem to know or be able to identify which quarterbacks are going to turn out to be the guys and which ones are super talented, fun college players that aren't very good. Um, and the randomness of the colleges that they attended before becoming stars, like Cal for Aaron Rodgers and Texas Tech for Mahomes and Wyoming for Josh Allen, it just doesn't seem there's much of a correlation. How complicated is actually evaluating a quarterback, and why do you think the NFL, like even these people who are spending years breaking this down, get it wrong so often? Oh, some of the smartest uh, football minds, quarterback minds in the league, uh, they get it wrong all the time. And I, I think first and foremost, it's because the quarterback position to play it in the NFL, it's an intangible position. It's about mindset. It's about confidence. And it's one thing to do it in college. It's just a totally another thing to go into a locker room with 30 year old guys and everyone's looking at you to be the guy. And I mean, you know, Zach Wilson, a good example of that. You know, he just, he, the confidence isn't there. 
for him to, I mean, the talent, the the physical talent is there, but not the confidence. Uh, where Brock Purdy doesn't have the same type of physical skills with with his arm and uh, the size, uh, but in terms of just the the makeup, the mental makeup, that is something that's hard to really uh, contextualize uh, or you know have a data point at a combine in terms of their confidence and just the way they're wired. That's that's what it's all about, and that's why the interview process is so important for these quarterbacks. But a lot of teams don't know the right questions to ask, and it's not like there is a, a clear cut way to get to the bottom of each one of these guys to understand who they are. But um, you know, because you look at first round quarterbacks the last ten years, it's a below fifty fifty hit rate. So uh, you know, if you're a team, you have to take a swing, uh, but at the same time, you have to really understand what makes these guys tick. Um, the scouting slogan is always going to be traits over production. So guys that maybe didn't have the eye popping stats aren't going to be necessarily the first quarterback drafted because teams are going to try to isolate these guys and figure out, okay, what are the individual traits that make them very talented? What's going to translate and and focus on that. And, you know, Caleb and Drake may and uh, Jane Daniels, who we expect to be the first three quarterbacks drafted, you know, so much of this process depends on where you end up. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by, uh, you know, in the a couple of years ago, if Mitchell Trubisky went to the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes mm-hmm. went to the Bears, you just swap those two. What, what's the trajectory of both of their careers? Coaching and development matters. That is a big part of this process that we don't talk about enough. Now, I mean, Patrick Mahomes is special enough that he's probably still, uh, you know, a a special player in the NFL, regardless of where he goes. But, you know, who knows what Mitchell Trubisky would be with Andy Reid and, you know, just the infrastructure they have there in Kansas City. We just we don't know. And so that's a big part of this whole conversation is where these guys end up. I think Tim Couch would have been an all pro. That's I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die on that hill. <laughs> I, I don't disagree. I don't. Yeah. Uh, he, he went behind the, the worst offensive line and uh, one of the worst offensive lines in, in NFL history with, uh, I mean, his top receiver was what, Kevin Johnson yeah. in 99 with the Browns. So, you know, it's uh, it, it, it's an interesting game of what if with some of these quarterbacks who unfortunately just went to bad spots. I think Michael Penix is a really interesting prospect for a lot of reasons. There seems to be this idea after the Sugar Bowl that like, this guy's like the best player we've ever seen. Like, you know, it's like, okay, like he's extremely accurate. The anticipation's there. But if you're looking for things like he is older, the knees are an issue. You know, he hasn't really done a ton when Kalen DeBoer was not on the headset with him. But a lot of those things do translate. He seems like a guy that might be there. You know, when you draft a quarterback, it seems like there's, we want this guy to be our guy for 10, 15 years if we can. He's probably not that guy. What do you make of his future and and what do you see as sort of how the NFL views a guy that's going to be, I think, a complicated uh, assessment? Definitely complicated. Uh, he's a polarizing prospect. There's no way around that. Uh, he won't be for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that he certainly benefited from the situation in Washington. And this is where you, as an evaluator, you have to separate reasons and excuses. Um, you know, was he the reason for that offense being, you know, what that what it was? Or are we making excuses, you know, because he had the receivers. He th- throwing the three pro receivers and the offensive line uh, won the Joe Moore Award as the top offensive line in college football this year. Uh, the coaching in, in place uh, was certainly a benefit to him. Um, 
but you know, I think it, it, the the two playoff games was an interesting juxtaposition of uh, two defenses that you know we saw against Texas, very vanilla. They knew exactly what the, Texas was going to try and do, and he was able to exploit that. Now against Michigan, which is the closest thing to an NFL defense that he has ever seen. He struggled, and he, it, it, before he even got the snap, it, it seemed like he was thinking about that impending pressure that was coming for him. So just the inconsistent areas of his game, some of the mechanical stuff, um, anticipation over the middle of the field is a real issue for him. His pressure reaction is very up and down. Um, those type of things you worry about in his transition to the pro game, but you love the arm confidence. You love how, his aggressiveness and willingness to attack every square inch of the field. Um it could be a winning formula in the right situation, but he's just not going to be for everybody. And uh, he could be drafted uh, 30th. He could be drafted uh, 80th. And I, I don't think either spot would really be that surprising. You know, I'm people know me as kind of a high school recruiting head here. And I am just fascinated by this Brock Purdy thing on how mm-hmm. a player who is going to be playing in um, the Super Bowl might not have ever even gotten a chance to even play in the NFL had the quarterback they actually took in Trey Lance getting injured. Like, I just am fascinated by the smartest man offensively that people perceive anyway uh, in offensive football, not even discovering what Brock Purdy was unless he was put into a situation where he had to play him. Maybe that's lack of reps or whatever. But, you know, what did people miss with Brock Purdy is just probably an impossible question to answer. But, you know, we saw his, his tape in, in college and he had his moments, but he wasn't particularly great consistently in college either, which brings me to this long winded end of the question, Dane, which is what can we take from the NFL draft? If anything, um, in the process of, of, of breaking down prospects and apply it to the, the high school ranks, if, if possible, mm-hmm. like how do you evaluate, and I'm not sure if you even do this, but what would you take uh, from your process and try to figure out what a better hit rate would be from high school athletes and in the recruiting world? I mean, there's definitely some parallels between the two, right? Where, uh, you know, you're banking on traits, you're banking on height, weight, speed. Uh, you know, the guys in high school that are bigger and faster than everyone usually have more stars. Uh, and that, in, in the draft, that that's how it plays out. Uh, guys go in the first round because they have high end traits, uh, projectable traits and translatable traits. Um, so there definitely correlation there. Um, but I, I go back to what, what I said earlier about the mental makeup. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing. And it's not an easy thing to, uh, to, to figure out. I mean, Kyle Shanahan, Drafted Trey Lance third overall, a guy that hasn't been able to get onto an NFL field, and when he has, it it hasn't been uh, hasn't looked pretty. Um, but Brock Purdy, I mean, I don't want to take anything. I'm not gonna, you know, ding Kyle Shanahan for for Kyle Purdy because he drafted him, but he drafted him the final pick in the draft. If you really liked him, uh, he would have drafted him in the second round or third round instead of you know waiting until the final pick. So sometimes uh you know you have to get lucky that way but i I think it does come down to just the the mental makeup that is a big part of this football is a game of adversity and you know it's it's not for everybody and that mental and physical toughness is something that you know weeds guys out and for a guy like brock purdy especially at the quarterback position he has that to him where he bounces back emotionally resilient that's why jalen hurts i think is another good example of that where Easy to poke holes in his game when you watched his college tape. 
but then you get to know him and you understand just the way he's wired and you're like, all right, I, I think he's going to continue to get better, but I know just the, is the leadership that he brings, the competitiveness. This is a guy that we feel really good bringing into our building and, you know, regardless of what happens. So, you know, it, it, it's, it is a hard thing to figure out, but it's something that if you're an NFL general manager, if you're an NFL front office, that has to be the goal is to figure out who fits your culture and, and who understands the way, the way things work with that toughness. And yet somehow impossible to figure out before they're good. Like it's like, it's <laughs> yeah. easy to say that now, but like, how do you right. figure it out first? I guess is the million dollar question. State college football uh, is in a weird space with roster construction, roster management. We're still trying to get our hands around what the extra year COVID eligibility means. Obviously, with transfers, that changes everything about how you operate in college. But in general, you know, NFL roster construction is still relatively the same. Collective bargaining has that effect. (laughs) We're working on that down here. But in general, when you look at all of the chaos with the roster construction in college and the additional year changing that, how do you think that that has affected assessments and trying to figure out who is this guy? And do you feel like that has affected knowing more or less? Or, or what is that? What has that changed about the uh, uh, process of evaluating uh, guys as they come into the league? Oh, I mean, we could talk for hours, right, about just the changing landscape of of college football and, and all the ripple effects of, mm-hmm. you know, it has on the NFL draft and how scouts do their job. Um, I mean, thankfully, that, that COVID year is almost up. So just understanding how many years these guys have left and, you know, who's going to the draft, who's not, uh, that, that will change here coming up. Um, and I was talking with a scout down at the Senior Bowl about this, how the, quote unquote, the small school prospect is kind of being eradicated. Maybe that's too strong of a word choice, but because of the transfer portal and NIL and the extra COVID year, a lot of these FCS or Division II players, they're getting a chance to make that jump uh, before they get to the NFL. Look at the senior ball roster this year. Only a handful of non-FBS guys. And so... There's always going to be small school guys, you know, maybe they're just loyal to the program. I know, you know, Tucker Craft, the tight end from South Dakota State uh, last year, he turned down six figures from SEC schools. Um, Alabama wanted him. Uh, he st- stayed put, won an FCS title, still a day two pick, worked out just fine for him. Um, and it's not like this is a bad thing. I don't blame players for transferring up and getting more of a uh, getting more on the radar with NFL teams um, and getting chance to play at the highest level. But we're going to see fewer and fewer small school prospects get drafted because of just they're going to have more options before they get to the draft process. And then, you know, with NIL, I mean, Ohio State's the perfect example for this, right? How guys that might be on the fence about going pro uh, or possibly going back, they're going to be lured back because of these NIL deals. And Again, not necessarily a bad thing. If I'm JT Tuamalu, um, I, I wasn't a lock first round pick, but I expect to be drafted probably somewhere in the top 40. Um, both Olufashinu, Joe Alt, probably the two tackles that are going to be drafted first this year. They said I was the guy that was the toughest challenge for them this year. Um, but, but there are certain things that I can work on to get better, make myself a first round uh, type of player, a, a, a lock first round type of player. So I can go back, make quality money and get better and, and improve my draft positioning. That definitely changes things. Ohio State, they had 
what, six guys, I believe, who were expected to be top 100 picks go back. Uh, Tuiamalu, uh, Denzel Burke, Travion Henderson, Egbuka, um, Tyleek Williams, and then Jack Sawyer. And then I, I would even throw in Jordan Hancock, the corner, mm-hmm. and Donovan Jackson, the guard, who were borderline guys, could have easily gone top 100. So that's eight right, right there who, uh, you know, it's crazy that they're able to retain that type of talent. Uh, but again, it's the ripple effect of NIL and how this affects the draft. It's interesting because it does dilute the talent in the draft pool a little bit. So guys with fourth or fifth round grades are now going to go in the third round because teams are just running out of those day two, two day two grades. And I mapped out my top 100. It's coming out next week. And I always send it around to a few of my buddies in the league to get their opinions on it. And one of them mentioned how, oh, you got this guy at you know 75. I've got a fifth round grade on him. And he's like, but you know what? I, when you stack all these players, it kind of makes sense where you have him. And he was mentioning how, you know, he hopes his boss realizes this. So when he has a fifth round grade on a guy who goes in the mid third, you know, he doesn't look bad because of that. It's just, it's that type of draft class with the the lack of talent uh, or lack of depth on day three. So it, the ripple effects of this and the college football uh, evolution is really interesting. Sorry, guys, I just got back from the cage. You just put in a future of Earl Ohio State to win the national title this year after what he just said. <laughs> Hey, Will Eight Howard, top 100 what do you picks? got? What do yeah, you got, Will yeah. Howard? I mean, we'll, that, that's we'll really what it comes down to, yeah. Um, the thing that I'm also interested in, too, and I, I, maybe this is more general, but I think it's kind of you hit on a lot of points there, Dane, is this notion of traits over production. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, as an NFL draft analyst yourself here, what, what what do you think about that notion? Like, when does production actually start to matter? And I've heard a former NFL quarterback say this to me, you know, um, after the fact, but you're starting and, you know, games started is a huge statistic that seems to be overlooked um, in the NFL draft process. Do you agree with that notion or does production have to matter more than it seems to matter right now? Well, I mean, there's no substitution for experience. And so the more starts you have uh, on your resume, that absolutely matters. I mean, that's something where, uh, you know, like in, in the draft guide, in, in the beast, I, you want to know the game started for every single player, it's in there. Because I, I do think that plays a factor. Um, I, it's not, I, I absolutely believe in traits over production. I, I think that is the right way to go. But that's not the same as saying production doesn't matter. I I do Mm -hmm. care about production and what did you do for your team? What type of impact did you make? Um, But you know what? College football and NFL, they're almost two different sports. They really are. And so I I think that, you know, while I do care about production and what you did, uh, catching the ball or, you know, how many tackles you have, what your backfield production was, all that does matter. But I care more about your translatable traits and, you know, just the way you win your football, uh, not just the athletic traits, but the football traits, your technique, your instincts, um, the way you see the field, the way you see the game. So, you know, it, it is something that is... You know, we we could really talk longer and longer about it, but at the end of the day, traits over production is a right is the right thing that or is the right way to go. But that's not the same thing as saying that production doesn't matter. Well, I guess real quick, Dane, before we let you go, college football is expanding into a playoff. Hmm. You look at the NCAA tournament: Tyrus Thomas, Patrick O'Brien. I can think of many guys who blow up in the tournament and then blow up their team's draft because people overvalued the tournament. Do you suspect college football will have a similar effect where maybe it's a guy that people didn't necessarily have an eye on. He has two great games and he goes from day three pick to day one pick 
and then maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. Do you, what do you think the, the new playoff will have an impact on the draft? Uh, that certainly matters because body of work matters over everything, mm-hmm. but we're all human, right? I mean, when the, mm-hmm. the lights are the brightest and we see guys perform on the big stage, you know, subconsciously or consciously, I mean, that, that plays a factor. And so it would have been really interesting if Washington lost that semifinal playoff game. Michael Penix playing the game of his life, best game he's ever played. And if mm-hmm. they lost, and that was the last game he ever played, I how are we viewing Michael Penix compared to after seeing him against Michigan? You know, it's just it's a really interesting uh, thing there because uh, I, after that semifinal game, I was like, I don't know what to do with Michael Penix because I gave him a third round grade. All the feedback I'm getting from NFL teams is third round grade, uh, but he just looked like a top twenty pick with the way he played against Texas. And then okay, goes up against Michigan. And it's like all right, that's the player that I figured we would get. That's what I think more of his tape showed. So, mm-hmm. but I, I think to your point. With more games in the playoff, more games that matter uh, in terms of the the tournament, that's that's something that will play a factor, whether it should or not. Uh, that's the different question, but I think it will because we're all human, and when the lights are the brightest and guys perform, there, there's certain value in that. There's no doubt. I'm going to kind of work on a column now that says why Michael Penix should be <laughs> selfish and should have tossed or, or thrown the the CFP semifinal. Uh, Dane, thank you so much. <laughs> thank I wish you, we could have had I'll you on call for you three hours. I'll ask you about the beast. Yeah. Right. Uh, you, uh, I, I expect a daily text, yeah. He's 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 the best, if not one of the best, uh, in the business. Thanks so much for your time and, and super insightful stuff. Appreciate Thanks, guys. And everybody, if you're uh, wanting more of Dane Brugler, and I don't blame you if you do, just we encourage you to go find the Athletic Football Show feed It's our NFL feed at The Athletic. It's one of the best NFL listens out there. He and Nate Tice provide excellent analysis. You can also read his written work on The Athletic, including his latest mock drafts and senior bowl takeaways. And then, of course, don't miss The Beast, which is an encyclopedia of draft knowledge and and thorough breakdowns of your favorite players and maybe some of the players that your favorite NFL team are considering drafting. So how about we move on to the next segment here? Let's get back a little bit more into college football. The SEC and the Big Ten Advisory Group and the impact that this could have. Um, there's a joint committee potentially that will be comprised of presidents, athletic directors, and chancellors uh, that will be a working group to address the significant changes that are happening in our sport. And people think that this is the first domino to fall before the SEC and the Big Ten leave the NCAA and start their own entity. What is your take on the on the news from late last week and, you know, what should people be feeling about this? Yeah, so I had a sort of muddled Star Wars analogy that I think you would have really appreciated. On. I also don't get because I don't watch those movies. <laughs> Ari's too good to uh, embrace intergalactic uh, conflict. At the end of the show, Dave, do you watch True Detective? Uh, I have, yeah. Yeah, this latest season is like turning out to be supernaturally, and I hate it, and I'm in a debate with my friends about it. Okay. Um, but we can talk about it at the end of the show. Go ahead. Okay. Anyway, um, but ultimately, I, I think I was telling somebody about this the other day. So I was at the coaches convention recently, and uh, there was a lot of discussion in the assistant coaches, among the assistant coaches, among the head coaches, that the Big Ten was conspicuously absent. The 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 SEC now the the um, the meetings were in Nashville. Ari, how many SEC coaches do you think showed up to the head coaches meeting? One. You are correct. Do you have any guesses of who that was? Um, I think you told me this. I'm I'll just, give you a hint. Cheating. He lives there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Clark Lee. Yes. Uh, 
So there's an idea, even among the people who are coaching in the ACC and in the Big 12, and there were a couple Big 10 coaches there, I should say. But there's an idea that whatever that they discuss in these meetings is like, it doesn't even matter. We're going to get told eventually what we're doing because the SEC and the Big 10 have the biggest bat and they're going to swing it eventually. And this is sort of what this is. When we talk about what are the new rules going to look like? And if there is a break off, if there is a new division, if there is a new governance structure, well, the SEC and the Big 10 are probably going to be the two chief parties that are deciding what these rules look like. And the ACC and the Big 12 are probably going to have to live with it. And a lot of those rules are probably going to put those leagues at a disadvantage, but money talks and that's where it is. And so, yeah, for now, this doesn't mean anything, but it's clearly a signal. And and I think, you know, we mentioned this last week. I think the Big Ten and Tony Petiti specifically recognize that, hey, it behooves us to have a productive working relationship with the SEC. For a long time, there was not a lot of discussion between Greg Sankey and Kevin Warren and Greg Sankey and Jim Delaney. These There was not a lot of open lines of communication. There seems to be now. Um, and I think that as you sort of go into this uncertain future where everyone agrees the current the current state is not sustainable, it's better to have these debates among each other in sort of off-site meetings so that when you go to the meetings that decide, hey, this is what we're trying to talk about, what we're trying to do, that the two biggest leagues have a united front. And I think that's where you're trying to get to with this advisory group, which is not called the, a committee uh, and it's not called the Alliance 2.0. But it, it probably don't is. you kind of wish it did though if it was called the oh, alliance two point do I think it would have been hilarious to call it the alliance but because um, this actually know. makes sense yeah well I think this is a real thing unlike the alliance which is sort of just like a thing with no contract that sort of was like aimed at thumbing their nose at the SEC for stealing Texas and Oklahoma despite the fact that Texas and Oklahoma called them first and then the Big Ten you know before too long broke that. Alliance, whatever we want to call it, uh, I feel like Jim and Dwight had a stronger alliance than the uh, Big Ten and the ACC and the and the Pac-12. I have some statements here that I'd like to read from Tony mm-hmm. Petiti. First, let's start there. The Big Ten and the SEC have sub- substantial investment in the NCAA, and there is no question that the voices of our two conferences are integral to governance and other reform efforts. Uh, Petiti said. We recognize the similarities in our circumstances as well as the urgency to address the common challenges that we face. And here's Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. There are similar cultural and social impacts on our student athletes, our institutions, and our communities because of the new collegiate athletics environment. We do not have predetermined answers to the myriad of questions facing us. We do not expect to agree on everything, but enhancing interaction between our conferences will help us focus our efforts on common sense solutions. Can so I translate that real quickly, Ari? Yeah, go ahead. You know that, that Chappelle show clip of the uh, the late fanning herself with the money and saying I'm sorry there's broke people in here <laughs> that's what I see we have we have uh, we recognize the similarity in our circumstances aka we rolling in it y'all about to be some broke boys I think that the most pertinent thing that people are probably turning to Dave as a result of this news isn't so much maybe just like the end of days of college football as we know it but how much this is going to impact um the college football playoff because of the SEC yeah. and the Big Ten's, you know, continued growing influence into the future. Uh, Greg Sankey told uh, Ross Dellinger of Yahoo Sports that we have the reality of meeting to deal with CFP governance with the 2026 season and beyond. That's a highly important issue. I think that basically speaking, this is, is there's no certainty about who and what is going to be, you know, at play here in 2026 and beyond. How does this impact uh, the future of the college football playoff and, and college football as we know it? 
Yeah, I mean, I so right now the the, the key debate, I call it a debate. So when this 12th team playoff was first, uh, you know, brought in, it made a lot of sense. We have six auto bids and six at-larges. The SEC, the Big Ten, the ACC, the Big 12, and the Pac-12 all had an auto bid. And then the highest-ranked G5 champion also got a bid. Um, so that could be a number of teams from the um, lower-level leagues. Well, now the college football structure obviously is changing, most notably the Pac-12 dissolving. And so... They should still the get an idea. auto bid. Well, for now. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. So you have the Pac-2 plus the Mountain West. You know, it's sort of like a Gladys Knight and the Pips situation um, with Washington State and Oregon State. And so, you know, there's certainly some feeling from the Pac-12, Pac-2 country, I should say. Well, we'd like to hold on to this auto bid. Well, respectfully, fellas, the Mountain West plus Oregon State and Washington State, that is not a power league. But contractually, you still have that sort of. So sorting that out and agreeing with it, I think it's very clear that we're going to go to a 5-7 situation where the ACC and its weird, you know, uh, amalgamation of teams that don't really make a lot of sense. Shout out to SMU and Cal and Stanford will have their bid. The Big 12 in their weird, that's still a power conference despite the fact that it's clearly a level below without a true power in the sport in the league. It's going to be a competitive league, and they definitely deserve a, 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 a bid. And then, of course, the Big 12, I mean, the uh, the Big 10 and the AC, and the SEC will also have auto bids. They're going to get a bunch of at-large teams in as well. And then the G5 is there. Now, the Pac-12, Pac-2 now, is sort of caught in the middle of are they G5, are they Power 5, whatever we want to call these weird leagues is the SEC and the Big 10. I mean, how far, how far away are we from it just being the have and the have-nots? Like, we know it. You don't well, have to, like, have a name for it. We don't know what the name is going to be. Yeah, but, like, I mean, it's, we're in a weird spot. We're still in You transition. have two power team conferences, and you have, yes. like, a power conference light in the ACC, yes. and then everybody else is kind of in there below. And I just, like, wonder. I know the auto-bid thing is kind of funny, but it's like Washington State and Oregon State are also kind of interesting Sim, uh, situated in the sense that yeah. if they win the Mountain West, they're still going to be in a pretty good position to potentially claim that that spot. It might not be an Possibly. auto bid, but yeah. it's not like it's impossible for them to still be in the dance. I will say, Ari, the Big 12, I think, on on average, has better teams. They just don't have the Clemson, the Florida State. The yeah, Miami's I'm with you. That can, that can go there. But I think, you know, you look at the bottom but beating half of those, those leagues, teams during the regular season, Dave, has been meant so much to those other programs. I agree. Like in the year that TCU made the college football playoff, beating Texas was like a mm -hmm. legitimizing stamp on their resume of like, hey, we beat these teams. Yeah. Not only did we win our conference, but we beat the powers in that conference. So when you yeah. remove them, anytime you go undefeated through a conference that doesn't possess those types of teams, you're always going to have a certain segment of the population raise their eyebrows and say, well, you haven't really played anybody good. And, and I always the, found that annoying. Challenge. I always found it annoying that when Texas and Oklahoma didn't have great years, everybody was like, well, the Big 12's down. It's like, ah, that Oklahoma State team in 2011 was pretty freaking good. The, the That's TCU your favorite team of all time. It's a great team, Ari. <laughs> the, 20, the 2015 Baylor and TCU teams, those are really good teams that would have been competitive in the playoff. Um, and so, you know, there haven't been a ton of teams outside of that, um, you know, that, that have been like elite, elite teams that weren't Texas and Oklahoma. But I don't, I, there's just been, if Texas and Oklahoma are not in the top 10 or top five, people just have always cast the Big 12 and say, oh, the Big 12 is down this year. So they don't have to deal with that anymore, at least. And if you're sitting there in the Big 12 and you're a 12 and one champion that beat the crap out of eight of the teams you played, you know, I, I, I think people will still look at you with some respect, not in the same way 
that a SEC team might have or a Big Ten team might have. But I think you'll be looked at the same way, in my opinion, as really, really good G5 teams in the past. No, except now. No, 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 no. It'll be different. I mean, all right, the amount of disrespect I'm not that saying, Cincinnati no, 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 no. or like right, some me, of these other teams. Let me jump back in. I don't mean in the sense that like that they are some sort of second-class citizen. I mean, people will look as at them as they are untested, but certainly an entertaining storyline, the same way they viewed Cincinnati when they actually made it, of like, mm-hmm. this is a really, really good football team, Power 5, G5 or not. I don't we know, Ari. Really- I think a lot of people just like anytime – uh, a G5 team is in the mix. They're just like, this is a joke. These guys shouldn't be in there. There's still a pretty I mean, loud sect of college football fans who believe that for whoever it is, whether think, we're talking about like, you know, Western Michigan or Cincinnati or UCF, you know, back in the day or whoever. I still think there's a pretty loud sect of college football fans that anytime that there's a call for this G5 team deserves playoff consideration, they're just reflexively saying no. But now we have a system that reflects their inclusion. So I think that that automatically yes. shifts because yes. they're this is they're not taking a spot from someone else. Yeah, they're, they're taking their it. spot. You're going to get in, you're so, going to get a chance to prove. Like that, period. but I didn't mean it like in the sense of of how I think that the way I would put it would be interesting story and intriguing intriguing team to watch though I'm unsure of them type of a mentality. Yeah. Like if okay. yeah, sure. if if a team like TCU or a team like Oklahoma State runs the table in 2027 you know, they're not going to be viewed as they in the same vein as they would have had they gone undefeated two years ago. Like, yeah, they're, they're, that's just a fact. Um, so it's worth noting, though, Ari, as we as we kind of move, like to go from the six, six plan to the five, seven plan, you have to be unanimous. Well, right. <laughs> well, the pack two is not going to vote for that. So I don't know where you go from there. You're sort of at an impasse. Our, our colleague Chris Vanini is at the CFP meetings today. I don't think they will settle that issue today. Um, but they'll have to settle it relatively soon. Um, I still, I don't think we have a pack two schedule yet for 2024. Am I correct in that? I think you're right. Yeah. I haven't yes. seen it. Um, so, you know, there, there's just, but we kind of know what it's going to look like. Well, <laughs> kind of, we have a decent idea, but we're not, we're not sure. So, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. Dave, can we go to a listener question? I'm going to read it. Um, maybe we got, we, we got a text. Okay. Um, and I want to make sure that the people who are sub- submitting texts feel seen. What would it take realistically and legally for college institutions to part ways with the NCAA specifically for college football? And would Greg, Greg Sankey be the obvious Roger Goodell commissioner for college football in the future? So I'll tackle the second question first. Um, college football needs a needs some kind of central leadership. I've said this for years. We're in the situation that we're in now in a million different ways because of that. But I think I remember, I think it was in Vegas last year, I did ask Greg Sankey specifically, how would you feel about you know having a czar of college football? And not him, but um, he did say, well, if you look through history, it doesn't usually end well for czars, which is sort of a funny way of dodging the question. But I think that it, it, it holds true, but then figuring out a new governance strategy where there is a commissioner is difficult. Now, if we ever get to that point, I think that Greg Sankey has the respect and approval rating among college football administrators to be the favorite, to be that guy, if we get to that point. But then, you know, is there certainly a question of, well, there's two leagues that are going to be running this. And if you're a Big Ten, you know, uh, administrator or person, even though you might respect Greg Sankey, you're still installing an SEC commissioner to run this thing. So, you know, if that does get to that point, I think there'd be some trepidation on that point. So 
we'll put a pin in that because it's sort of a smaller issue. As for the larger issue, I think the, the short answer is we don't really know exactly what that would look like. I think that this new division that Charlie Baker is throwing out there is a decent starting point. But in terms of a real breakoff, um, you know, everybody's got to agree and put putting together rules and getting 60, whatever the number is going to be, institutions to say, we want to form our own thing. All right, it's very hard to get 60 people to agree on anything, much less 60 large institutions that have varying levels of, uh, you know. I mean, hell, half of our interest. staff picked TCU to beat Georgia two years ago in the national title game. You're never going to let that go, are you? You're never yeah. going to let that go. <laughs> I, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, but you're right. It's just like, I think the answer to that question is, like, think about how complicated all the issues are that college football yes. faces that are should be tackleable or yeah. easy. And then think about how complicated and complex that would be. And then try to get everybody on the same page for that. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, holy crap, I can't even envision what that would look like. Yeah. So I think we're still a long way from that. I, I think, ultimately, the goal for a lot of people is not so much to get to this predetermined finish line. I think when you talk to people around the sport... It's just like, let's get to a place as soon as possible that players, coaches, administration, university leadership can all agree, okay, this is at least more sustainable. It's not going to be perfect. They're going to have to tweak some things, change some things. There'll be unforeseen circumstances. But right now, it's not good for players. It's really not good for coaches. It's not great for administrators who can't sneeze without getting sued. Um, And so... This is not sustainable for anybody. And so college sports and college football, which I think might be two very different things very soon, have to sort of trend toward a space that is a little bit more sustainable for everyone. And I would like the idea of if you have a college football breakoff, redistrict conferences to make more sense. I'm fine with college football realigning with these conferences. Like if Stanford and Cal and SMU or whatever want to play football in the ACC, that's fine. But like that chasing the chasing the dollar and the TV money should not affect your like non-revenue sports or like water polos got to go play, you know, at Maryland on a Tuesday night or whatever. You know, that 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 doesn't need to be happening. Like keep the smaller sports regional, baseball, swimming, all that stuff. I think if college football breaks off, you can sort of redraw things back up and say, "Okay, can we get back to a more common sense place?" for the rest of college sports because college football has been chasing this money and has messed everything up. It also up. would be financially advantageous for everybody too. Well, so you know, maybe. Well, you know, well, I'm just maybe. saying like There's the expenses of flying across of the country if you are Stanford's water polo team, it's maybe, a lot but the cheaper money to go is, play in Oregon than is, it is in, in Maryland. It's not? It's 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 substantial, but compared to what we're talking about, it's still a drop in the buck comparatively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there's only like 12 people. How many people are on a water polo roster? Uh, That's a trivia question. I want the answer next week. You have to go into that. Okay. (laughs) All right. I think this is a nice segue into the actual mailbag portion of the podcast. We have some voicemails. Want to appreciate say in advance that we appreciate everybody who participates. If you'd like your voicemails to be read uh, or played on the show in the future. Uh, here's another reminder to call 316-462-9852. We listen to them. We laugh at them. We love them. And we want to play them on the show. So if if you want yours on, again, 316-462-9852. Cam, why don't you play the first one? Ari, U.S. gets to call in and call you dumb. And I am happy to oblige you today. I have never seen anyone <laughs> more unaware of who their audience is, college football fans. We are not built on logic. We are built on lunacy. And you're telling me 
an Ohio State fan, not to spend all offseason trashing Michigan for cheating, but instead focus on winning the game next year. Beat it with that stuff, nerd. I don't play on the team, and I'm not on the staff. What do you want me to do? Go ahead and uh, draw up some plays and send them to Coach Day to use next November? Tell no. I'm going to do the only thing I can do, which is hop on Twitter, hop on these message boards, and call these boys cheaters, cheaters, cheaters. And they'll respond back, championship, championship, championship. And I'll respond back, cheaters, cheaters, cheaters. And we're going to go back and forth until next November because the rivalry, it's 24-7, 365, baby. And it ain't built on logic. It's built on being a hater. <laughs> my favorite no, and least favorite thing notes. about that. Yeah, he's right. Is, yeah. My favorite thing and least favorite thing about that is that he definitely wrote that down. That was no, not it was smooth. He, he, it was he good, read, but, he I, read, but not smooth enough. He read. It was good. It was a we, good reading, we, but it was clearly a reading. He's smoother on his question than I am on the show. I'll give him credit for that. I do like <laughs> the frantic phone calls that we've gotten from the stadiums. Like people calling as yeah. they're walking out is the best. But pure raw emotion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a broken man. Help me, please. Uh, no, that. But I, I think that's right. I, I think that it wasn't so much not to engage in the rivalry as much as don't sound so weak doing it. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. just. I don't know. It, it just. I feel like Michigan cheated is the same thing. If you're the Ohio State fan and you're listening to this, or any Ohio State fan listening to this, every time Ohio State gets a commitment. Uh, programs that didn't get that didn't recruit or have the NIL in place or whatever that were good enough to get that commitment writing on the comments of the stories they paid him they paid him they paid yeah. I think it's the same thing of yeah. like okay loser uh go complain and cry in the corner um that's kind of how it comes across to me but you know if you want to antagonize your your uh your counterparts in this rivalry all the power to you I have no notes for your call I want you as as a fan to um you know, internalize and, you know, use the entertainment product of the sport the way that you like it. Like, I do think that sometimes when I write a column, you got to remember that it's my opinion. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to change yours or that you have to behave the way that I probably would if I were in that scenario. Mm-hmm. If I were in that scenario, I would still hate Michigan and, and resent everything that they did this year. But at the same time, I wouldn't be crying because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that they like it. They want you to, to, to do that. They want you to, um, you know, show that you're upset and to, you know, manifest that emotion the way that you are. And I would probably just try to do it in a stronger manner. That's all. That's just my, my opinion. If you think I'm crazy, then I appreciate the call and it made me smile. Mm-hmm. Hey, Ari and David. Uh, my name is Darren. I live in Louisiana. I love the show. Been listening to the athletics college football content for a few years now. I have a take. I've been thinking about it for a couple months now. The Dr. Pepper Fansville athlete is the new Madden curse. Now, with the Madden curse, more often than not, there was an injury that would occur to the NFL player who was on the cover of the game. So I think this curse is actually more of a team curse. 2021, DJ Uyunglele was crowned as the first Fansville NIL athlete, and Clemson did not have the season that they were hoping for, uh, as Ari predicted going into that season. 2022, Bryce Young was chosen. Most people thought going into that season that Alabama was just going to coast to a natty, and they did not look like a championship team, particularly in their biggest games. 2023, Caleb Williams is next in line, and USC goes 7-5, and five, which is still mind-boggling to me. Hoping an LSU player never accepts this NIL opportunity as it seems to be a death nail for expected team success that season. Again, love the show, guys. Hope the offseason flies by. Take care. 
Got to get Peyton Hillis on the cover of that, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's I, a good theory. I will, yeah, think, I will say I think Bryce Young had a maybe a better year uh, than he did even when he won the Heisman. His he said it's a team first. I know, but that's the one hole. But it, it's a good theory. It's a good. Theory. You know what? I actually have a theory in response to this theory. You want to hear okay. it? And I think part of the reason why, like, I would bend down at the altar of Nick Saban for the rest of eternity is there is a certain mindset. And I don't know if this is something that was shaped when I covered the 14 and 15 Ohio State teams that won the national title in 14 and then, you know, basically flopped the next year. They only lost once, but they didn't make the playoff despite being more talented and having everybody back from the year. I think that there is a certain emotional let up that happens when you achieve greatness once mm-hmm. and people in this position have already achieved greatness. Um, mm-hmm. And then when they come into the following year, I know it's a team curse. Um, the pedal to the metal might not be there. And the reason why I love Nick Saban is, is that for somehow some way, you know, over the course of his, you know, 15 years or whatever it was at Alabama, he somehow continued to get the best out of Alabama year after year, despite the fact that they had been, the reigning champions a lot of those years. Um, and that, maybe that is just kind of a way to explain the unexplainable, or maybe it's just a true detective theory. I don't know, but maybe. I did find it funny and uh, certainly something to track when they, when, when we see who it is next year. All right. How would you feel about Nick Saban on the cover of NCAA 24? I think that's who it should be. If we're being honest. Okay. I'm on, I'm, I'm with it. I'd prefer that over like Caleb or Jaden Daniels or whoever. I'd prefer. I Caleb. don't know how they're going to pick um, the athlete, but, I mean, who better personifies the sport and the return of the game? Yeah. Or how do you even honor, you know, this, the run that Saban had in a better way? And I, I actually would not, I would feel, I would not feel that way if he was still active. But I think the fact no, that he is. No, yeah. The fact that he's on, not active anymore, it kind of reminds me of the Madden cover that had Madden on it. Yeah. And he passed away. So it's a little bit of a different scenario, but like it's still, yeah. you know, honoring one of the best most dominant fixtures in the history of the sport, the year that he retires and the year of the game comes back out, I think would be appropriate. So, mm-hmm. okay, next one. This one is a text, I think. So let me read it. Uh, Future of the Power Four. Matthew T uh, posted this question on The Athletic, and it's just a reminder, uh, if you do subscribe to The Athletic, please leave questions. We read them and we will use them. If you could start from scratch, what would your proposal for the future of the P2, 4, and 5 look like? Are we talking about conferences or like, rules or like governance what are we it's kind of about? vague so just take it the way that you want to take it well i actually wrote about this last summer um i think that smaller is better i would like you know eight eight team leagues and you'd play a seven team conference schedule and then you'd play you know five non-conference games against whoever and compare all that stuff that's what i would like personally um i think it would be more regional i think it'd be college football what it is i think if you could draw it up with a central leadership, that would make a lot more sense if you had a lot of Texas schools together and everybody pooled all the TV money and it made a little bit more sense where, you know, you didn't have all this sniping and backstabbing and you get conferences where, you know, Rutgers is in the Big Ten and uh, Cal is in the ACC and Utah is in the Big 12 sharing a conference with UCF. It doesn't really make sense. So that's what I do. But maybe that's just me. You know what the one thing that I will say if like it were up to me? And I, maybe it's kind of just repeating your answer, but I do only understand eight teams kill everyone else. I would only just play <laughs> Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Florida State, Texas. Yeah, Oklahoma, that's a good kill plan. everybody out. No, that's a good. Plan. No, 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 no. <laughs> My thing about college football and maybe the, the most, you know, pertinent 
or prime example of the tribalism that it is, is the SEC's take on the South and football in general, and it just means more and all that stuff. The one thing that I will miss as teams, you know, bolt their conferences in pursuit of television riches is the regionality of the sport. Um, And you mentioned this a few times early on the podcast, but, you know, I want Midwesterners to feel pride in what Michigan did because they're all a bunch. I want Southerners to feel pride when Alabama or LSU or Georgia wins a national or somebody else wins a national Mm -hmm. championship out of that region. Um, I thought that the Big 12 was perfectly situated in terms of the geographical connections between the two powers that were in Texas and Oklahoma and everybody else. Nebraska. Nebraska. uh, Yeah. I mean, and there are some, you know, in the last seven years, departures of that of like Rutgers and and Mm -hmm. Nebraska, but also to like the West Coast football. It's like the Pac-12 didn't die. I wonder if like the identity of the Western Coast died. You know what I mean? Like that to me is a really sad story. So I don't know what the playoff would look like. Um, but if it were up to me, I would I would probably echo your sentiment in the smaller conferences, eight and eight. And I'd want those eight teams to be sorted based on regionality, not yes. based on prowess. Yeah. And then I would want the playoff to reflect that and maybe even put it into a position where it'd be like eight auto bids and four for for everybody else mm-hmm. in terms of like a committee standpoint and then let it play out that way and then get the um tribalism and the locality of that sport back. Um, mm-hmm. That's the one thing I'm going to miss more than anything. And I understand that money and NIL and transfers and all that stuff that we're kind of, you know, living through right now is an inevitability. But the one thing that I think that we could keep intact and I still think it's possible if we ever got to that, maybe not anymore with the super conferences is just, you know, competing with the people that you live near and then rooting for, in some cases, the people that you live near to show that your area of the country is the elite of the sport. I thought that was great. So, okay, I think that's the end of the show here, Dave. Welcome back, man. Um, Yeah, appreciate it. It's been fun. Good to be back, and I hope you had a nice vacation. Um, This show is going to keep going on. Uh, Later in the week, you will have another episode on the Until Saturday feed with Nicole Auerbach. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening to the latest edition of Until Saturday. Um, Lastly, just wanted to say before we get out of here that there is a rumor that Bill O'Brien, not a rumor, reports, that Bill O'Brien could be um, leaving his Ohio State offensive coordinator job before ever calling a play to become the head coach at Boston College. Uh, We will certainly be on top of that um, as that continues to progress, but wanted to make sure we have it in there. Um, You know, subscribe to the YouTube channel, subscribe to the Apple channel, um, interact with those channels any way that you can. The links to both are found in the show's description. And finally, call 316-462-9852 to leave a voicemail or to submit a question for future mailbag episodes. Uh, For Dave Uppen, I'm Ari Wasserman. Thanks again for listening to the latest edition of Until Saturday.